it's really a story of of him going there without a backup team. That's very rare for Mossad. Mossad almost always sent, you know, kind of a scout team ahead and then a, a protection team along with the agent. But Mio decided that might tip off Zuckers, who was very suspicious, especially after the Eichmann operation. Welcome back to the Live Drop. I'm talking with Stephen Talty. He's written some really cool books. One I'm talking to about him today is called The Good Assassin. It's how a Mossad agent and a band of survivors hunted down the butcher of Latvia, Herbert Sukors. Uh, it's published recently, April 2020. I thoroughly enjoyed this nonfiction account of how Sukors was hunted down by a Mossad agent, Jacob Madad, codenamed Mio. Uh, Stephen shares how he chooses characters for a real-life account and why ultranationalists are trying to rehabilitate Kukors as a national hero. We chat about Mossad's spycraft and stick around for the dozen decisions. Begin transmission. I'm interested in espionage history. I've written books on it before. And I was just reading a book called Rise and Kill First, uh, which is about Mossad kill operations. This was maybe three years ago. And they had, I think they had a page and a half on the Zuckers operation. And I was fascinated by this sort of idea of kind of a one-on-one contest between a Mossad agent who lost his whole family to the Holocaust and one of the ordinary perpetrators of the Holocaust. So I just started looking into it. I found a memoir that the Mossad agent had written. And then I found this backstory of the uh, amnesty that the German parliament was going to consider, which I was kind of blown away at blown away by, actually. I mean, I read a lot of World War II history. I never realized that Germany had considered a statute of limitations and kind of the worst of the worst. So those two elements kind of brought me together. Before we kind of get into the you know operational side of it and how they hunted him down, I just wanted to get a little background on the character of, uh, of Zukors. I mean, he's a hero, pilot, adventurer, and the butcher of Latvia. Later on in the book, you, you describe someone who knew him saying he wasn't your garden variety anti-Semite, that he did have a sort of rapid change into violence and sadism when the Germans occupied, I think, in 1941. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about this character that I haven't already just said. Well, one of the things that drew me to Zuckers is that old question, what would you have done during the Holocaust? I mean, that's I think people ask themselves that. And before the war came, Zuckers was a guy that I could admire. I mean, I really love these kind of, you know, interwar stories of Lindbergh or these pioneer aviators who went all over the world. And he actually built his own planes, which was another thing. The engineering kind of fascinated me. And wherever he went, he had this charm. I mean, he charmed the locals. He accepted them on their own terms. And so he kind of risked his life for this adventurous existence that I kind of admired. And then, of course, coming out of the war, he's a completely different character. He's a guy with the blood of 30,000 men, women, and children on his hands. So I wanted to know how he made that turn. So yeah, before the war, he had Jewish friends. He would be in the capital of Latvia, Riga, drinking with you know Jewish intellectuals. His father owned a workshop. They hired Jewish workers. It was very strange. He wasn't a guy who showed any hatred before the war. And that was kind of mirrored in the country. Latvia didn't really have a history of pogroms or attacks on Jews or burning down synagogues, the kind of things that had happened in Russia and Poland. And it was actually a sanctuary for people fleeing from Berlin or fleeing from, you know, Hitler's influence elsewhere. So, you know, when you write a large history through individuals, you're kind of looking for characters that reflect the larger reality. And certainly he did in both senses. Before the war, quite friendly towards Jews, quite open-minded. And during the war, like some Latvians, he really became kind of a sadist, somebody who seemed to enjoy ransacking and stealing from Jews and and helping kill them. 
you mentioned also that Riga didn't have the gradual escalation of Jewish oppression and and, and violence that had happened in a much more uh, more rapid window. Did that cause them to respond any differently? I mean, there was a ghetto in Riga. There was, I mean, were there uprisings like in Warsaw and, and other areas? No, there wasn't. I think the difference was a lot of these Jewish families that we're talking about were German speaking. They looked to, towards Berlin for their culture. So not being able to see the um, newsreels or whatever of attacks on Jews, only hearing rumors, they really kind of tended to believe in Germany as an institution and didn't believe these things could really be true. So a Jewish person in Berlin saw the gradual escalation and learned that the Nazis were absolutely committed to exterminating Jews in in Europe. But in Riga, these were just stories from refugees pouring in. And so a lot of people stayed who should have left, basically. There was a chance to go to Russia. Russia had occupied the country in 1940. You know, people could have gone to Moscow, and some people did, but the majority stayed. So it was really a question of you know, do you believe the history that you've known for hundreds of years of Bach and Beethoven and all these things that you've loved? Or do you really, or do you believe this kind of nightmare scenario that you're hearing from refugees who might be living in, in the extra room upstairs? Maybe you could tell me about some of your uh, other characters. Zelma Shipskovich. Sure. Zelma was one of these people, like I said before, you kind of look for representative characters. And Zelma was somebody who lived through really the worst of the occupation and also had a connection to Zuckers. She found sanctuary with a young guy who was desperately in love with her, a guy who was nicknamed Nank, a Latvian, who took her in. Her whole family was wiped out. And it turns out that Nank's roommates were part of the commando unit that Zuckers was not in charge of, he was second in command. So she got to hear all these stories at night. She was impersonating, you know, a Latvian girl. Nobody knew she was Jewish. And she basically uh, socialized with the people who had killed her own family. And that fascinated me again, that she had to keep control for, for years, basically, supplying these guys with vodka and hors d'oeuvres or whatever, being polite, but learning the history of what was happening to her people. What kind of drew me to Zelma also later is that she actually heard Zuckers give an oral confession. It's the only one we've ever heard from him. At a party one night, he, he arrived and he said, you know, with this gun, I've killed 300 Jews today. And so that was very important in the trial later and kind of accumulating evidence that we have against Zuckers. She actually heard those words. That was his only admission. It was his only admission, yeah. But I also like Zelma because she was very spirited. At one point, she talked back to a Nazi official who could have had her killed, you know, the next minute. So I think she said something like, don't, you can kill me, but don't raise your voice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you kill me, at least have good manners about it. I mean, she was, she's a fascinating person to me. She survived, moved to Israel, but kind of the whole story of the Jewish experience in Latvia is there in her story. Was she sharing this information w- with anyone? I mean, she had this access to this inner, inner, inner circle. Was she? After the war, immediately after the war, she was in um, Sweden and she tried to get the world interested. You know, one of these different people who came out of reports about the concentration camps, she was, she was kind of on the later side, but she was really the first to talk about Latvia, what was happening there. And this was really before, you know, we knew about Auschwitz and all of that. So she couldn't get anyone to listen or to act on it. She had lists of people who needed to be arrested. She went to the British embassy. She went to the American embassy. Couldn't get anyone interested. So there was this terrible frustration that she and other Jews felt that people like Zuckers were escaping to South America or were going back to lead normal lives in in Latvia. 
and facing no punishment at all. I was amazed to read that that ruling that in 1965, all mm-hmm. you know Nazi criminals are going to be given amnesty, and that had the full support of the not made up full support, but had the overwhelming support of the social Democrats, that it was yep. based on some some law from from like Bismarck's time or yep. something like that. How did that happen? I mean, eventually it was, you know, pushed back, but how how could that uh how could that law still be on the books in nineteen sixty five in Germany? Well there was this idea, I think what Germans used to justify it is that Hitler had abused the legal system to get what he wanted. And they couldn't do that again to sort of, you know, punish the Nazi people because, you know, again, you're, you're sort of disfiguring the law or, or changing things that should never have been changed. So they didn't want to go back and change a law that had been on the books since 1871, which was basically a statute of limitations of 20 years for indictments of murder. But the other thing was they, they were not willing to face that this was not ordinary murder. I think that was the big blind spot in Germany at the time. They wanted to believe that Hitler you know, a few of his lieutenants were really in the whole responsible for the Holocaust. And it's just not true. So that generation wasn't willing to sort of look at what mayors did, what policemen did, what government officials did. They wanted to sort of draw a line under the war, say Nuremberg took care of the killers and we can move on. But the world wasn't really ready to do that. Zucors, I mean, he uh responsible for 30,000 deaths. How does somebody like that just make a quick professional transition? How did he escape? Was was it common what he did? During the war, after all the Jews were dead in Latvia, Zuckers went to Western Russia to fight the partisans and um, you know served with the Nazis, basically. Went to work at an airplane factory. And then after the war, you know, he wasn't on any list yet. There were so few surviving people from Latvia. And the emphasis was really on the German hierarchy, getting, you know, the big names. So he managed to slip through that net with the help of the Catholic Church. He got a visa to Brazil and got on a boat and basically, you know, sailed to a new life with his family. And the most amazing things, you know, what you have to understand about Zuckers is that he was a narcissist. You know, he was so attached to his own name and his own accomplishments during the war that he refused to change his name. Uh, this story would never have happened, probably, had he taken basic precautions, changed his name, and lived quietly. So he shows up in Rio. And immediately begins telling people that he was a victim of the Nazis and that he managed to save several Jews from the extermination camps. And he actually had one young woman with him who told the story, who confirmed the story that he was not a killer. Um, It later turned out that she was kind of his mistress, really his sex slave during the war. And, you know, he was using her basically for propaganda purposes. So in Rio, he's... So it wasn't exactly Schindler's List. It was not a romance in any sense of the word, but he was successful for a while. And people, Jewish leaders actually congratulated him, had fundraisers, had parties for him, which he, you know, he loved. That's what he lived for is is fame and admiration. So this goes on really through the 50s. He's condemned by Nazi, uh, sorry, by Jewish leaders when they find out who he really is. And then in 1964, as part of a kind of program to stop the amnesty, Mossad decides that he will become the guy that they kind of take out to show that these killers are still out there. That's when the book turns to uh, Yaakov Maidad, who was a Mossad agent, lost his parents in the Holocaust. Maybe the most brilliant undercover guy that Mossad ever produced. Uh, he had more than 100 identities in his, in his career, nicknamed Mio, and he agreed immediately to take the mission. He kind of saw it as turning the page on his own personal story, as well as 
helping out Israel, helping out the history of the Jews, he wanted to sort of, in a way, avenge his own parents. Mossad, like most spy agencies, is very, very closed mouth, very rarely allows its agents to write histories of its own mission. So this is a very kind of extraordinary thing that they allowed it. Did he write it under his own name? Jacob Maidan? He did, yeah. He was um, he's very proud of the Zucker's mission. He had a co-writer, another Mossad agent who lives in Israel, and I went to Israel and interviewed him, and also my dad's son. So um, I kind of added to the story of, of what he wrote in the memoir. But um, it's really a story of, of him going there without a backup team. That's very rare for Mossad. Mossad almost always sent, you know, kind of a scout team ahead and then a, a protection team along with the agent. But Mio decided that might tip off Zuckers, who was very suspicious, especially after the Eichmann operation. So he would go there alone and kind of mano a mano against this, uh, this former Nazi. He wanted to go gray. Yes, what else was a little bit different about his um, his operation against Zucors? You know, these guys were pretty cagey for the, for the most part. I mean, they changed their names. They they were living in Brazil and Argentina and all these places. What do you think was kind of the key to his success? And did did they kind of exploit that narcissism or that ego of Zucors trying to catch him? You know, I think Mio was kind of like a great actor studying a role, and his role was part of it was to get into Zucor's brain and find out what was important to him. What did he want? And then offer him that thing. So he went to um, Brazil in 1964 in the fall, finds uh, Zucker's working. He has his own little business on one of the lakes in Sao Paulo, running out rental boats and a rental plane. And he, he's kind of in reduced circumstances. His glasses are taped over, doesn't have a lot of money. And Mio kind of spends time with him, drinks some brandy with him, trying to find out what would make, what would kind of tempt Zucker's into following him. So eventually he realizes it's kind of money and respect. Um, this guy has been world famous and now he's kind of a grease monkey in, in Brazil. So he wants to get his name back. He wants to earn a lot of money and, you know, kind of be celebrated again. So Mio imme- immediately takes that as his cue and says, well, we can make you rich. We're an Austrian company. We're looking to uh, invest in tourism in, in Brazil. We need a local point man. And why don't you be that point man? And Zuckers, even though he was very paranoid, very neurotic, slowly begins to listen to this message and, and slowly begins to dream, you know, that his life isn't over, that it can have a third act. God, they really get into your head, don't they? I mean, does Mossad, was this just, was that just Mio's idea or did they have, I mean, did they have like a kind of an operational group or a team that was kind of brainstorming this and what his plan would be? I mean, you mentioned in the book, the Israelis always have a plan. They have an acronym for plan B and plan C. Yep. You know, and, what were, and also what were the plan B and plan C or did he have one? Well, no, that was the, the unique thing about this mission is that Mossad kind of set out the basic cover story. You're an Austrian businessman, go over there and, you know, he's in tourism, you be in tourism. So but after that, it was going to be improv, you know, it was going to be improv, you know, find out what he wants and give it to him. So um, it was much more kind of off the cuff than most Mossad missions. Um, they gave him basic starting point and said, go from there. Yeah, he, he improvised. He tried to befriend this guy and try to get inside his head. And I think the other thing about Mio you have to understand is that when you think of a Mossad agent, you think of a tough guy in a nice suit. You know, you think of kind of the Israeli version of James Bond, and that was not Mio. If you saw him on the street, you, would, you wouldn't notice him. He looked like a middle manager at a bank or something like that. So he was very good at blending into the surroundings and becoming who you wanted him to be, not an overpowering personality. 
And that's kind of the thing that intrigued me about him in his real life. You know, he was an introvert and not very confident, really. Um, But when he got on these missions, he really kind of became a new person. He took charge. He could be very assertive, very bossy, in fact. And, you know, that's what makes me compare him to an actor playing a role. Yeah. So it sounds like he took on this legend. How detailed was his was his past? I mean, when you're improvising things like that, you know, a good improvise a good, good improvisation comes with some good preparation sometimes. I mean, how how in depth was his legend? He put it together pretty fast. He'd been doing this for years. So he went to Rotterdam in Holland and um, you know, opened a bank account, got an address, started collecting local what they call pocket matter, so that if Zuckers went through his suitcase someday. He would see price tags from Rotterdam and not from Tel Aviv. Uh, wouldn't set him off. He also got eyeglasses, which he didn't need, and which, in fact, he he insisted on prescription. He didn't want clear glass. Oh, because some somebody tries them on, right? Well, even if you know Zuckers is talking to him over a cocktail table and sees that there's no curve in the in the glass, he's he's going to realize. This is just a prop. This is not something he's wearing for better vision. So even though it could harm his own vision, he insisted that he get these prescription glasses. So, I mean, it just shows that what a perfectionist the guy was. And he, this um, co-author that he worked with, a guy named Gad Shimron, told me that if you woke up Mio when he was undercover, he would speak in the language of that cover. He wouldn't speak in his native German. So he was like totally committed to the role. He's like Daniel Day-Lewis or something. Yeah, exactly. He was very much a a method kind of person. He needed to feel the glasses had to be real. They couldn't be anything fake about his legend or he would feel it. And he would be worried that the target was going to feel it as well. Keep harping in the documentary inside the Mossad. I mean, the first Mossad agent they interview, he goes on telling the story and he's also wearing glasses, older, older gentleman, really not assuming he could have been someone who worked, worked in a bank. And he describes the Eichmann operation when, I think Eichmann, like, I think he was reluctant to go into the van, and he said, well, "I just grabbed him and threw him in." Like this guy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you expect, uh, you know, someone a little bit more, you know, larger or powerful looking. But um, right, yeah, they were definitely underestimated back in those days. Yeah, that actually became a problem later in the mission, as as I write in the book that most of these Mossad agents were kind of small guys. They weren't like you know six feet two fifty. And they had to bring down Zuckers, who was a very big guy, very strong. You know, Mossad guys are known for using their brains, but at a certain point... You got to throw him in the... You got to put a bag over his head and throw him in the van, right? You need some muscles. So um, that kind of be, became a, uh, a challenge at the end. Did you write the screenplay for Kevin Phillips? I did not, no. I just wrote I wrote the book. You know, in that book, there's... Uh, I think it was wonderful because you, you actually had empathy for your kind of main antagonist, the Somali... Pirate as played by Barkad Abdi, just a kind of a wonderful performance. I mean, if this this if this gets turned into a movie, this story, could you conceivably see any sort of redemption or empathetic portrayal from somebody like Zukor? I don't know if I would say it was empathy, but you know, one thing I wanted to find out as we spoke about is like, why did he do it? Why did he turn against the Jews like this? And I did find a more sort of human reason than, you know, Nazism. He was um, during the occupation by the Soviets, which happened right before the Nazis marched in, he had collaborated with them. He had helped them sort of design airplanes. So, you know, again, his narcissism got the best of him. Most Latvians hated that occupation 
and hated any of the collaborators who had gone along with it. So when the Nazis came, he knew he was in trouble because his former partners were gone and he needed to save his own skin. Um, so he, um, he turned against his former neighbors and, and friends, worried that he would be killed if he didn't do something. So, you know, I think there's a lot of psychological shading and layers to what he did that make him not the standard Nazi villain. Uh, I don't know if you feel sympathy for him, but you certainly understand that he was in a situation and he made a really horrible decision. Yeah, I mean, he definitely had a lack of kind of that malignant narcissist, you know, lack of empathy himself, obviously, to be able to do what he did. But yeah, he had to really go to extremes to prove himself. He did, yeah. I mean, he he could have been right side, you know, right alongside those people in the death pit. So he had to make a fast decision. And like you said, he always came first. So he made it pretty quickly. Plot to Save America, Philip Roth. Did you see any similarities with uh, Lindbergh aside from his uh, being a pilot? I don't think Lindbergh was as much of a narcissist. I do think, uh, you know, he had some prejudices that came through in his own political life. But I, I, I do admire Lindbergh apart from that role he played in, in the late 30s, early 40s. So um, that was a name, a nickname that, that Zucker's got. I, I don't think the two people had that much in common except for their kind of daring and courage. But um, yeah, they were both kind of on the wrong side of the war, that's for sure. And currently, I mean, there's, you know, there's a rise in nationalism and, um, you know, the far right in, in Europe as well. And um, as I was reading through, I mean, I was thinking about the question. I thought, God, can you imagine, you know, this as a, a musical? And then sure enough, another paragraph later, <laughs> I think in 2014, there actually was a musical about Herbert Zukors. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, the kind of ultra-right in Latvia and Eastern Europe has has kind of taken him up as a hero. And that was, I think that's the only flaw in the Mossad operation is that he didn't get a trial. So we don't, you know, there wasn't a public examination of all the testimonies against him. But um, there were a lot of survivors who saw him and eyewitnesses to what he did. There's no doubt, I don't think, that he was a criminal. But um, since it's not in the record, they, they're kind of free to use him as somebody who was innocent and was murdered anyway. So um, it is kind of a symbol of what's happening in, in Europe. The old ghosts are kind of returning and anti-Semitism is on the rise. And um, yeah, he's part of it. How's the reception been for the book so far? And what's what's it been like um, promoting it and watching it go out there? Um, it's been good and bad. I mean, you know, bookstores are closed. Even my local bookstores take out only kind of. So, um, you know, this coronavirus is dominating the news so much. It's hard to get any kind of marketing or kind of radio on the book. So that's very tough. But I've heard from the families of some of the victims. I went to Israel and also spoke with, um, you know, the sons and daughters of the Mossad team members who went over, who were part of the mission. They liked the book very much and, and feel it's a complete story of what their parents did. So that's very gratifying. I just hope, you know, as the spring and summer goes on that perhaps books like mine and many other books that were published, you know, at the same time, can get a little air, a little oxygen to remind us that there's other things out there besides the besides the virus. Really appreciate your time and talking about this book. I do think some things now where I have my guests uh, and make one dozen decisions. Sure. First is Americans or Homeland? Oh, Americans. Lacare or Len Dayton? Lacare. Stripes or solids? Mm, stripes. Uh, sandbaggers or the prisoner? The prisoner. Yeah, me too. Except for the big plastic ball floating across the water. That's right. The beach ball. Right. Um, Ludlum or Clancy? 
That's a tough one. I love love them stories, but I don't love the writing, and I love Clancy's um, incredible attention to detail. So I'm gonna have to go with Clancy. Uh, surveillance or counter surveillance? Definitely counter surveillance. Crunchy or smooth? Smooth. Covert or clandestine? You know, I actually thought of a spy novel, and the name I was going to give it if I ever wrote it was the Big Clandestine. Um, <laughs> never wrote the book, but I still love the title. So the Big Clandestine. I'll be on the lookout for that. Beirut or Berlin? Beirut. Actually, I'm trying to convince my wife that we should visit sometime soon. I love Beirut. Black bag or burn bag? Let's go with burn bag. Matrokin files or Stasi files? Stasi all the way. Live drop or dead drop? Live drop. All right, cool. Thank you very much, Stephen Talty. I enjoyed it, man. Thanks. That was my talk with Stephen Talty, author of The Good Assassin. You can find out more about Stephen at stephentalty.com. Be safe and be well out there on the transmission. Mm-hmm.